Have you ever noticed that we have this strange fascination with war? Especially little boys, right? Playing make-believe, setting up soldiers, pretending that they're playing with guns. This strange fascination. But if you talk to any adults, you will hear the reality. You will hear people say things like, war is hell. And as Christians, sometimes there's a strange fascination with spiritual warfare that can go too far. It might look like looking for a demon behind every bush. Or the opposite extreme might be true. Where there's, we see in this world, we see physical pacifism, and I think there's legitimate biblical arguments for that. This can translate into our spiritual lives as well. Where we think that we don't need to fight spiritual battles. Where there is no literal enemy of our souls. Where there is no hell and no devil. This leads us to spiritual pacifism. Is there a connection between physical war and spiritual warfare that can be instructive for us as Christians? And if there is, how so? The connection I want to make first is about us being on the defensive. About understanding our enemy and his ways. When we look at our passage today in 1 John, we're going to see about us being on the offensive. So what are the strategies for overcoming the darkness and the evil one? We'll talk about the defensive strategy first. The first strategy is understanding the enemy. A famous Chinese general, Sunzi, and he was a military strategist. He wrote a very famous work called The Art of War in the 5th century BC. And the art of war is still used today by military leaders. It's used by politicians and those in business management The principles are kind of timeless. And in chapter 1, Swinza talks about laying plans. How is, I want us to ask, how is the enemy scheming against us and using these tactics of laying plans for our downfall? As I read through these principles that Swinza lays out, I want us to, to hear that when we when we hear the words the enemy in these principles, it's this is us, okay? We are the enemy of Satan, and these are the things he is trying to do to attack us. The first one, he says, all warfare is based on deception. Next, hence when able to attack, we must seem unable When using our forces, we must seem inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we are far away. When far away, we must make him believe we are near. Next, hold out baits to entice the enemy. Feign disorder and crush him. If he is secure at all points, be prepared for him. If he is in superior strength, evade him. Next, if your opponent is of choleric temper, upset or angry, seek to irritate him. 
Pretend to be weak that he may grow arrogant. Next, if he is taking his ease, give him no rest. If his forces are united, separate them. Next, attack him where he is unprepared. Appear where you are not expected. Next, these military devices leading to victory must not be divulged beforehand. And finally, now the general who wins a battle makes many calculations in his temple before the battle is fought. The general who loses a battle makes but few calculations beforehand. Thus do many calculations lead to victory and few calculations to defeat. How much more no calculation at all. It is by attention to this point that I can foresee who is likely to win or lose. Now my point in sharing these things is not to make you feel scared or overwhelmed. It's actually to reassure you. Because you're not the general. Jesus is. He has laid out his plans for victory very clearly in his word. And I'm concerned that too many of us are trying to fight this battle alone. We isolate ourselves in the name of not wanting to burden others with our problems. But we leave ourselves more susceptible to the enemy's deception. My main argument this morning is that our warfare and victory over the darkness must be communal and triune. We're going to unpack this as we look at 1 John Chapter 2, verses 7 through 14. Let's go to God's word and see the glorious promises that he has for us today. John writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. First thing I want us to look at is that our victory over the darkness must be communal. John continues his flow of thought beginning in verse 3 about knowing God and keeping his commandments. The opponents were making false claims about their relationship with God and enticing those John is writing to with these false claims. We saw that in verse 4, 
whoever says, and that is a negative, I know him but does not keep his commandments. And then in verse 5, it's a positive, whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God is perfected. Then in verse 5, the last half of verse 5, he says, By this we may know that we are in him, the positive, and then the assurance, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now here in verse 7, John is going to expand on this commandment in anticipation of the question from his readers. John, what do you mean by keeping God's commandments? Last week we looked at the Ten Commandments, right? We talked a little bit about that. There are food laws, various food laws in the Old Testament. There are, there are purity laws. There are laws about capital punishment. So you can anticipate the readers being like, well, what commandments are we talking about here, John? And John says, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And I think this commandment here, this old commandment, we can think about it in two senses. First, it's the Old Testament law summarized. And we talked about this last week in Matthew 22 where Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor. That's the whole summary of the Old Testament law. So in one sense, it is the old law, it's the law from the Old Testament that is fulfilled in Christ. So it's still an old law. But he also says that you had from the beginning. And this means that the law that you had, the, what we taught you when you first became Christians. Obviously this can't mean from the beginning in the way that it means from the beginning in the beginning of this book. Where it talks about Jesus being from the beginning. These, the people he's writing to were not alive then. And they weren't from the beginning in that sense. So he's saying from the beginning of your Christian walk, these are the things that are true. And we see that this old commandment is the word that you have heard. It is the gospel message. It is the teaching of Jesus, which is really helpful for us then to go into verse 8 and understand what he's saying here. He says here, at the same time, or on the other hand, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now we might think, okay, what, which one is it, John? What you say, it's a new commandment, it's an old commandment, it's... It's a new commandment. The new commandment, I believe he's referring to what we shared with the kids, John 13, 34 to 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And this, why is this a new commandment? Didn't Jesus already say, love your neighbor as yourself? He did. And that's a, if we know from the parable of the Good Samaritan, who's, who is your neighbor? Anyone, right? Anyone you run into is your neighbor. So there's an idea that we should, we should show love, we should show concern toward all people. But what Jesus talks about here, this new commandment, is a unique kind of love. It's a unique kind of love among the body of Christ. Love one another just as I have loved you. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. 
So there's a, there's a witnessing, there's a testifying power to this love that is different, that is unique from just the generic love that we are called to love all people with. For me, I saw this firsthand when I became a Christian in college and I got involved in Campus Crusade and then I got involved in a good gospel preaching church and I remember after becoming a new Christian going back to my hometown and, and going to a Bible church in that town that preached the gospel and just seeing the way people loved each other and seeing the way they interacted with each other. And I was just like, like, what is this? Like, who does this? You know, like it was so new to me. I had gone to church some growing up. I had been in, you know, circles of friends where we, you know, we cared for each other. We watched each other's backs. But I, I had never seen something like this. I had never seen this kind of love before. And it was powerful. And it was, it drew me in, Right? And it was, it is a powerful testimony and a witness to the world that is watching. And this is not some new phenomenon. Christians living like this, engaging in countercultural living, loving one another. This is something that's been happening since the early days of Christianity. One of my favorite stories from church history comes from the second and third century. It's uh, actually recorded in a book by Rodney Stark called Triumph of Christianity in a chapter called Misery and Mercy. He writes about the plague that devastated the Roman Empire in 165, beginning in 165 AD under the reign of Marcus Aurelius. And this was probably the first, small, the first time that smallpox made it over to the West. In 15 years... A quarter to a third of the people in the Roman Empire died from this first plague. And then a hundred years later, another plague struck the Greco-Roman world. When this second plague struck, the physicians, the philosophers, the priests who were in the temples, the, the Roman temples, many of them fled to avoid the plague. They got out of the cities, they got away to their estates, and and they didn't want to deal with the death that was going on. And those who couldn't flee, they tried at all costs to avoid those who were sick. They wanted nothing to do with it. They didn't want to, to help people out. Dead bodies were just thrown into the streets, and they just piled up. In a pastoral letter that was written during the second epidemic in 251, Bishop Dionysius described the events in Alexandria. He said, At the first onset of the disease, the pagans pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. And then Stark describes how the classical philosophers had no answer for what was going on. But, he says, Christians claimed to have answers, and most of all, they took appropriate actions. As for answers, Christians believed that death was not the end and that life was a time of testing. As for action, Christians met the obligation to care for the sick rather than desert them, and thereby saved enormous numbers of lives. He then quotes Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria again, who wrote that letter I just quoted. He wrote a letter here to members of his congregation who had risked their lives caring for the sick, and this is what he said to them. 
Most of our brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation so that in death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith seems in every way the equal to martyrdom. Stark points out then that for the pagans, there was no hope of salvation. This is what he closes with. He says, we must keep that that in mind when we compare the reactions of Christians and pagans in the shadow of death. Christians believed in life everlasting, At most, pagans believed in an unattractive existence in the underworld. Thus for Galen, who was one of the physicians who fled the city, for Galen to have remained in Rome to treat the afflicted during the first great plague would have required far greater bravery than was needed by Christian deacons and presbyters to do so. Faith mattered. This is an example of light shining in the darkness. This is an example of Christians going on the offensive. For John and for Jesus, walking with him translates into action of loving our brothers and sisters. We see this in verses 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If we love one another, if we love our brothers and sisters, we will abide in the light and there will be no stumbling. But if we hate Our brothers and sisters, we walk in the darkness and we do not abide in the light. Remember the three tests that John uses here, if you've got your card on the back side of that. The theological test, the moral test, and the social test. John is applying the social test here. In other words, do you want to know that you are a Christian? Or as he is helping his readers to understand the errors of those who left the church and were teaching false things about Jesus. Do you want to know how to know who is not a Christian? If you say you are in the light, if you say you belong to Jesus, but you hate your brother and your sister in Christ, then you're still in the darkness. This is the test. It's the social test. It's the test of love. John's main argument in this first half of the book, this first half of 1 John, is that God is light. In the second half, the topic is going to be that God is love. But in this first half, it's that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So if we're in him, if we claim to be in him, then we will walk with him. We will walk in the light and we will have fellowship with God and we will have fellowship with one another. 
picture a bunch of logs in a fire. What will happen if you take one log out and set it off to the side? Is it going to keep burning? Maybe for a couple minutes, right? But eventually that log is going to go out. This analogy was brought home to me last week. Uh, there's a friend who, who visited last week. He lives out of town. Uh, he was with us last year on our men's retreat. And uh, at, our, at the men's retreat last year, I, I used this analogy. Because I, I was encouraging him, like, bro, you've got to be in church. Like, you've got to be in a good gospel preaching church. You've got to be around other believers if you're going to grow in your faith. Because if, if you're not, you're like that log that just gets set aside by itself, and it's just going to burn out, right? The light is going to go out. Well, he came last week, and after the service, he came up to you. He's like, man, remember that analogy you, you use about the logs? Like, I need to get back in church, right? Because he was here, and he, he experienced God's people worshiping together and God's people loving one another, and he was convicted by that. What a great picture of our spiritual lives. We can't do it alone, if you try to isolate yourself, the, the fire is going to go out, right? The light is going to go out. We need to stay connected to Christ, and we need to stay connected to the body of Christ. So if we're going to have victory over the darkness, that's, it needs to be communal. But it must also be triune. Our second main idea here, our victory over the darkness must be triune. We move here into a very interesting part of this letter, verses 12 through 14. Uh, you'll notice probably in your translation, in most translations, there's a, there's a poetic structure here. It's, it's indented because of the, the poetry, the way this is written. It's the only place in John's letter where this occurs. And there are a lot of questions out there about who exactly John is addressing. Uh, there are many interpretive possibilities. Uh, he, he talks about little children and then children fathers and then young men and he repeats these three things i remember in college as a new christian in a bible study uh, we were talking about these verses i don't remember what conclusion we came up with but i remember just like everyone everyone was kind of confused like what's this about and this is like i didn't know there was such thing as bible commentaries at the time i didn't know you could go and like read pages and pages and pages about this and after you read pages and pages and pages still come away saying I don't know, <laughs> because they don't know. My point and my encouragement here is don't get hung up here trying to decipher some secret code in these addresses, okay? Like, ooh, who are the little children and who are the young men and who are the, the fathers? Don't miss the forest for the trees, okay? We want to see the reminders that John is giving to us as Christians who we are in Christ, and how these things apply to us as believers. Now, I would say the kind of the, gen, the, the general consensus among commentators, most think that little children and children is kind of referring to everyone, because uh, that's how he writes throughout this letter, and that fathers is return, referring to those more mature in the faith, and young men is, returning, is referring to, to the younger Christians. Again, if that's what he's doing, that's fine, uh, but let's not, get, let's not get caught up trying to like, decipher all these hidden meanings. Um, let's see what John is saying very clearly. So he's saying here, he's, he's writing to them to remind them that these things that he's going to say are true if you are in Christ. 
Verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You have forgiveness of your sins, Christian, because of God's Son. As we saw last week, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He died in our place. He bore the wrath of God for us. And we have forgiveness and assurance of our forgiveness because of who he is. We saw two weeks ago that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sins. So that's how he begins here. Now he addresses fathers. And he's going to say the same exact thing in verse 13 and verse 14. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I think here he's referring to the father and the son. Because he began his letter, that which was from the beginning... And he's talking about Jesus. So he's writing here, that which was from the beginning, the Son and the Father. You know him who was from the beginning. There's no distinction for John between knowledge of the Father and knowledge of the Son. In John chapter 8 verse 19, after Jesus told the chief priests and the Pharisees that he was the light of the world and that his Father bears witness about him, They asked him, where is your father? And Jesus said, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Later on, he says, if you've seen me, you have seen the father, right? So if you know me, you will know the father. And John would have heard these words, and John would not make a distinction here between knowledge of Jesus and knowledge of God the Father. Christians are those who know the Father because they know the Son. And John reiterates that in the address to children at the end of verse 13. He says, I write to you children because you know the Father. So there's this knowledge of God the Father and of God the Son. Finally then he addresses the young men. In the middle of verse 13 and at the end of verse 14. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then in verse 14, he adds, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This here in verse 14, you are strong, the word of God abides in you, you have overcome the evil one. I believe this here is a reference to the work of God's spirit in us. God's word abides in us through his spirit. So this whole section emphasizes our relationship with our triune God. It talks about knowing the Father and the Son. It talks about forgiveness of our sins because of Jesus' death on the cross in our place. Then it talks about the Word of God abiding in us by the Holy Spirit. So this is the work of our triune God to give us victory over the darkness and victory over the evil one. So what does this practically look like in our lives? What does it look like then to have victory, to overcome the evil one? A few practical things. The first thing is to pray. The Lord's Prayer, which we read earlier, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word there in Matthew, when Jesus says that, is actually the same exact word that John uses here. It's the evil one. 
It's deliver us from the evil one. Again, this is not, I'm not saying like you need to be looking for a demon behind every bush. This isn't this, we're walking around afraid all the time. But in our prayers, Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. That is something that should be a part of our prayer lives. It should be a part of praying for God's protection in our lives, that we would be delivered from temptation and that we would be delivered from the evil one. The second thing is to flee from sin. If you want to fight and overcome the evil one, you cannot just dwell in sin and dwell in the darkness. We need to flee from our sin and flee from evil. The scriptures talk about this over and over. We've seen it here in 1 John, what it means to walk in the light. The third thing is to resist the devil and he will flee. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So we resist sin and we resist temptation. Pray, flee from sin, resist the devil and he will flee. Brothers and sisters, we are not strong in ourselves, right? This sounds overwhelming, If you're anything like me, when you're alone, when you're struggling, this is hard to do, right? It's hard to believe sometimes that these things are true. But we are strong in him. And we are stronger together in community. That's why we have our community groups. That's why we have our men's and women's times. That's why we go on retreats together. So we can take time to get real with one another, right? To share our struggles, to pray for one another, to talk about what's going on in our lives. So I want to ask you this morning, are you, are you fighting sin and temptation on your own strength? Or are you fighting alongside of your brothers and sisters in love, in the knowledge of the assurance of your relationship with God based on what he has done for you in Christ on the cross and in the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you. This isn't just a one-time deal either. This isn't just something that you get saved and all of a sudden all of the struggles in your life just go away. It's actually exactly the opposite. When you start walking with Jesus, you get a target on your back, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil want to take you out constantly. So brothers and sisters, don't be surprised when trials and temptations come your way. Don't be surprised at the attacks of the evil one. But also don't lose heart. Because remember that God is with you and God is for you. The ultimate victory over The darkness is guaranteed because of the cross of Christ and because of the empty tomb. As we prepare to celebrate Easter in a few weeks, let us remember that that empty tomb is a constant reminder of God's victory over sin and Satan and in a world that is committed to walking in darkness. Let us be those who walk in that victory, who know that our sins are forgiven, who know that evil and the evil one is ultimately defeated. And let us walk in the light. Let us love one another so that the world might see that we are his disciples.
Let's pray together. God, how we need this reminder that the battle belongs to you, that you are the one who fights for us. But you also call us as your followers to walk with you, to walk in the light, to obey you, to pray, to flee from sin, to resist the devil. Thank you for the promise that he will flee. Not because our resistance was strong enough, but because you are strong enough. God, we pray that you would protect us as your people. That you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would help us to love one another in such a way that the world truly sees that we belong to you, that we are your disciples. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.